stops here. Plug the radio in. It is time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians, where we teach you how to defend the truth of Christianity. My name is Keith Kendricks. With me today is Kirk Hastings, author and apologist. Say hello. Hello. (laughs) Good. That was good. You're very obedient, Kirk. I like that. I was going to say, you know, hello, Kirk, but you didn't say all of it. (laughs) That's true. Well, this is Evidence for Faith. You can find us online at evidenceforfaith.com. You can also find a bunch of archived radio shows. I've got about, oh, I don't know, maybe 30 of them now, I think, up. A lot of them from last year and some of our interesting shows with some interesting guests. If you're interested in the topic today, which I guess we have to tell them the topic today now. That would be a good idea. So that they can call in. So we know what it is, too. Oh, okay. All right. Well, today's topic is about the Christian worldview and the values and principles that arise out of the Christian worldview and how they affect nations, making them either more wealthy or poorer economically. And we're going to try to do all this in 60 minutes. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We're going to solve the world's problems in 60 minutes. Right. So At if you, 6 o'clock, you'll have it all figured out. That's right. But if you'd like to join in the conversation, you can reach us at 609-398-1020 or online. If you go to the evidenceforfaith.com website, there's a contact um, button, and you can press that. You can email us, and we are monitoring our emails right here, so we'll get your emails if you send it to us that way. Boy, we got all the technology going here now, don't we? I, we are spiffy, yeah. It's a touch-sensitive screen and the whole shot. So, Kirk, did you have a good uh, Christmas? Yeah, pretty good. good nice New and Year's. quiet. And, yeah. yeah. That's the way I like it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I had all the kids home from college, and and then New Year's, Nancy and I went out dancing and stuff, so it was a lot of fun. Okay. We went out to dinner for New Year's Eve and came home and watched the ball drop, drank ginger ale. There you go. <laughs> nice good and quiet. Stuff. All right. Very good. My wife's an elementary school teacher, so she likes all the peace and quiet she can get. Oh, I bet. I bet. Well, we hope everyone out there had also had a, a terrific Christmas and New Year's. Uh, we've got a bunch of news items, so I guess we should just dive right in and get to... There's been... We had a, a repeat last week, so we haven't actually been in the studio for two weeks. And there's a bunch of stuff that, you know, around Christmas time, Easter time... All this stuff just comes out of the woodwork with archaeologists discovering things, and and there's been actually a lot of interesting things going on. I think they save it all up for the holidays or something. Yeah. Atheists uh, come out of the woodwork, too. In fact, let's start with that. Um, I, I, I've got to save a uh, soundbite that I saved from the O'Reilly Factor. This was uh, last month on the 21st. Laura Ingram was in for him, and she interviewed this atheist by the name of Annie Laurie Gaylor. Now, she is the leader of Freedom From Religion Foundation, so trying to make a big impact in the world there. 
with she's freedom. the new Madeline Murray O'Hara. Apparently, I take it? well, or or wanna for this generation. Well, they've been, you know, you've heard about these advertisements that they put up around different places. They did it in London right. and in Washington, D.C. And this On one, the buses and everything. Yep. So this one is billboards up in Las Vegas uh, that they posted. So she had her in, and I'm afraid Laura really didn't handle her very well. I was a little disappointed. Hmm. Um, she was very condescending towards this woman. Um, didn't really argue against the things that she had to say. Just tried to belittle her and tried to accuse her of... Hey, you know, we're having Christmas, and here you're trying to rain on our parade. Right. Uh, I don't think that's a very good approach. Um, so, Laura Ingram, if you're listening, please don't try this by yourself. If you want to debate with atheists, do it the professional way. Get a professional in there to debate with them. But let's hear. Just so you call get a, Keith up. Yeah, or Kirk. <laughs> get the professional author atheist, author atheist, author uh, apologist Kirk Hastings up there. Um, John Katedy is at the controls today, so um, we're in for lots of um, surprises, I guess. He, he looks is that good he or bad. Sleep. Yeah, he might sleep during the show. We'll see. Um, go ahead and, and, and let's hear from Annie Laurie Gaylor and see, just see what you haven't heard this, Kirk, so just see what you think of it. You can certainly say that the God of the Bible cannot be proved to be true. If there is no proof for something, we should not believe it. And more people have been killed in the name of religion for something that cannot be proved than for any other reason. Okay. There. Now, she just, that was basically, I mean, she was on with uh, Laura Ingram for seven minutes, but that was really the crux of her entire message right there. I think that point of view is about, like, about 3,000 years old now. How long have they been repeating that? (laughs) Well, it was interesting. She did say she. I was hoping she'd say something new. Yeah, know? something that with a little evidence behind it. Right, exactly. I know something hard, maybe give us yeah. a hard question. Right. Um, but you know what? This is what's out I there. I can't though. prove that she exists either, so I don't believe in her. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. That. Okay. For for people who are listening, you know, you do hear these a lot, and there are easy answers for these. The. This idea that she said there's no proof for something, if there's no proof for something, you should not believe it. Well, that is a self-refuting statement because there's no proof that that statement is true. There's no proof that one ought to not believe things that there's no proof for. So it's a self-refuting statement. Mm -hmm. So it's illogical. Now, if on the other hand, she said something different. If she just changed one word in there, then it's something that I myself have said in the past. And that is, if there's no evidence for something, you should not believe it. Okay, that sounds good. Yes, if there's no evidence. Now, um, she's saying that you shouldn't believe anything that can't be proved. So now maybe she does mean evidence, I don't know. But the way she worded it is very poor. Many things can't be proved, absolutely, right. but most, ought to be believed. Most things can't be proved in the, you in know, the, in, in a kind of an ultimate final sense. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. So that doesn't that doesn't say anything, right? Now, what about this? What she said? How do you answer as a as a uh, an author and an apologist? I love that. Have you read my book yet? <laughs> no. Don't say that. That's what I'd say to her. Is that what you'd say? Yes. <laughs> Always trying to sell books. You want some proof? Read by my the book. Way, by the way, where could people get your book? Uh, probably the best place uh, is Amazon.com and online. The name, the name of the book? 
is What is Truth? A Bye. Handbook for Separating Fact from Fiction in a Propaganda-Filled World. Okay, they don't have to type all that in, do they? <sighs> no. Okay. What is Truth will be fine. What is Truth by Kirk yes. Hastings. Yes. Very good. Okay. So, Kirk Hastings, author, apologist. And your local Christian bookstore can probably order it for you, too, if they don't have it on the shelf. Right. They should buy six or seven of them. Okay. Six or seven hundred would be fine. That'd be good, too. All right. The God of the Bible cannot be proved. What do you say? Uh, well, <laughs> what do you consider proof? Yeah. What, would you, what kind of proof would you need to believe in God? And then I would let her tell me what she wants. Right. And then once she told me, then I would probably give it to her. I think what she—I don't think she even means that. I think she means there's no evidence, because that's what we hear all the time. The atheists who have called us on this radio show, what they've said is there's no evidence that God exists— that's what they mean, no evidence. That's You really have to be a pretty ignorant person to say that, though, because um, if there's no evidence, then why have people believed in this for thousands of years? And, exactly. You know, what is the Bible? You, you know, it's, it's historical documents that give us evidence. So to say that, she— She's saying that in ignorance of the fact that there's tons of evidence that yeah. she hasn't apparently, either hasn't considered right. or doesn't know about. And apparently has not ever read Aristotle. Because Aristotle— Or C.S. Lewis or Josh McDowell right. or, you know, uh, they hundreds all, of other authors. Right. So for thousands of years, men have been providing evidence that God exists. Sure, yeah. So, so now she did say— For her say, to say there's no evidence is just an ignorant statement. Right, right. So I think, I think she's— she, that's what she means, although she did say there's no—the the God of the Bible cannot be proved. But Now, if I she had said, I don't believe the evidence, or I go. don't understand the evidence, or the evidence isn't good enough for me, I could kind of accept those statements. But right. to say there's no evidence just is, right. is a nonsense statement. How about that last statement that she said? More people have been killed in the name of religion than any other reason. More people have been killed in the name of atheism than any other reason, too. That's Think the, about Stalin, Hitler, Hirohito, yeah, Mussolini. That's the actual truth. You notice whenever they say this, they don't give any numbers. No, they never do. No. But and they never give any specifics. Now, they're, they're actually all has, very general statements. Some historians have actually done some work to see how many people in the history of the world have been killed by religion, by wars of religion. About five million. And that's a lot of people. I'm surprised the number's that low, to tell you the truth. No, five million. And if you, if you look back historically, um, most of it, about 90% of it, it was by uh, Islamic extremists. Um, but uh, that's the extent of the reli- wars specifically for religious reasons and killings for religion. Um, how many do you think? You mentioned the deaths of, by atheists. Yeah. You, have, do you, can you recall the any di- numbers? You know, the dictators throughout history, how many yeah. millions and millions of people have they killed in the yeah. name of their political philosophy or their beliefs or whatever? Directly from their atheism, yeah. Yes. You don't have to go back even the, the into through recorded history. You can just look at the 20th century. Just the yep. 20th century, 170 million killed by only 52 atheists. So— Okay. There's your real danger to the world. It's certainly not from Christianity. 
And when she says religion, is she saying Christianity or is she saying all religions? Well, you know, they're... true religions and false religions. They're... In that case, I might agree with her statement. Uh, there true are many religion. religions oh, yeah, around, many atheism, false religions yeah, that have resulted ath- in the deaths of people. Yeah, you can count atheism as a form of religion. Sure. Yeah, that's true. Well, if you're just joining in, uh, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And this is Kirk Hastings. And you can reach us at 609-398-1020 or email us at evidenceforfaith.com from the website. All right, let's see. I wanted to talk about this Manhattan Declaration um, that, and Kirk, you told me that you have uh, signed on to this also. I went on the internet and have signed it. Yeah, what do you think of it? I think it's excellent. I think it's an excellent statement of what Christianity really is, what the core beliefs of it are, and they're asking people to review this statement, and if you believe what it says, to sign the document uh, indicating that you do believe it, and I think it's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. I've got the website open now. I just thought the uh, introduction was well worth reading, and and. Uh, Let me just read this, and we can discuss it more. Christians, when they have lived up to the highest ideals of their faith, have defended the weak and vulnerable and worked tirelessly to protect and strengthen vital institutions of civil society, beginning with the family. We are Orthodox, Catholic, and Evangelical Christians who have united at this hour to reaffirm fundamental truths and justice and the common good, and to call upon our fellow citizens, believers, and non-believers alike to join us in defending them. These truths are the sanctity of human life, two, the dignity of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, three, the rights of conscience and religious liberty. Inasmuch as these truths are foundational to human dignity and the well-being of society, they are inviolable and non-negotiable. Because they are increasingly under assault from powerful forces in our culture, we are compelled today to speak out forcefully in their defense and to commit ourselves to honoring them fully no matter what pressures are brought upon us and our institutions to abandon or compromise them. We make this commitment not as partisans of any political group, but as followers of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So... They're basically saying, now these are leaders from the Catholic Church, leaders from the Orthodox Church, and leaders from the Protestant Church, that we will civilly disobey if the government of the United States tries to enforce through some of these legislations that are going through with this health uh, thing that they will force things like Catholic hospitals to provide abortions and et cetera, that we will civilly disobey. If they try to force us to contradict our own beliefs, we're just not going to do it. Exactly. And, um, you know, that has been the way it has been historically for the Christian uh, faith. We have mm-hmm. not always lived in countries where governments were designed under biblical um, uh, principles. And many times we have had to uh, disobey. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that may be the case again. Uh, I see on the website there, it says that more than 300,000 people have signed this declaration so far, and yep. it's still growing. Yep. So it's, uh, 
it's a terrific thing. I I like also their preamble. I don't know if uh, uh, you know they say you shouldn't read on the radio, but um, this preamble is so good, and it's a little historical review of what Christianity has meant to the people of the world of the past 2,000 years. So I thought I'd read this too. So it says, uh, Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year tradition of proclaiming God's word, seeking justice in our societies, resisting tyranny, and reaching out with compassion to the poor, oppressed, and suffering. While fully acknowledging the imperfections and shortcomings of Christian institutions and communities in all ages, we claim the heritage of those Christians who defended innocent life by rescuing discarded babies from trash heaps in Roman cities and publicly denounced the empire's sanctioning of infanticide. We remember with reverence those believers who sacrificed their lives by remaining in Roman cities to tend the sick and dying during the plagues and who died bravely in the Colosseums rather than deny their Lord. After the barbarian tribes overran Europe, Christian monasteries preserved not only the Bible, but also the literature and art of Western culture. It was Christians who combated the evil of slavery. Papal edicts in the 16th and 17th century decried the practice of slavery and first excommunicated anyone involved in the slave trade. I did not know that before reading this. So I knew we were active against the slave trade, but I didn't know that the Catholic Church was also so active. Did you see the movie Amazing Grace? I did. That was an excellent movie. That was about that. And we highly recommend it to our listeners. Yes. So to continue the this preamble, evangelical Christians in England, led by John Wesley and William Wilberforce, put an end to the slave trade in that country. Christians under Wilberforce's leadership also formed hundreds of societies for helping the poor, the imprisoned, and child laborers chained to machines. In Europe, Christians challenged the divine claims of kings and successfully fought to establish the rule of law and balance of governmental powers, which made modern democracy possible. And in America, Christian women stood at the vanguard of the suffrage movement. The great civil rights crusades of the 1950s and 60s were led by Christians, claiming the scriptures and asserting the glory of the image of God in every human being, regardless of race, religion, age, or class. This same devotion to human dignity has led Christians in the last decade to work to end the dehumanizing scourge of human trafficking and sexual slavery, bring compassionate care to AIDS sufferers in Africa, and assist in the myriad of other human rights causes, from providing clean water in developing nations to providing homes for tens of thousands of children orphaned by war, disease, and gender discrimination. Like those who have gone before us in the faith, Christians today are called to proclaim the gospel of costly grace, to protect the intrinsic dignity of the human person, and to stand for the common good. In being true to his own calling, the call to discipleship, the church, through service to others, can make a profound contribution to the public good. Wow. Isn't that great? Yeah. That's a terrific uh, preamble. I was very... uh, pleased to be able to sign it myself. People don't think about a lot of those things when they think about Christianity necessarily. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree, but um, and and a lot of it has gone by the wayside. It's certainly not taught in school anymore. No, um, you know, there uh, apparently it's uh, illegal to teach about Christianity, so we wouldn't want to say anything nice. Well, unfortunately, I think that's one of the reasons why we people today don't value Christianity the way they used to is because they're not taught that it was uh, the very thing that encouraged a lot of these social movements that you just mentioned. Exactly. Yep. So if they don't know, you know, all no, they, they know is, oh, Christianity is a bunch of don'ts and tells me I can't do this and I can't do that, and that's right. what they think Christianity is. Right. Yeah, but exactly. It's far more than that. Yeah, I, I, you see often a, uh, a car go by with a bunch of bumper stickers on it, and you can tell, you know, the person is a, a atheist or a leftist or something, and one of the things <laughs> they'll have, the bumper stickers they'll have, is social justice. Well, gee, where do you think social justice came from? Sure. Hello. <laughs> um, you know, I ran into a couple of other things that I thought were worth talking about on the show because I want to recommend it to people. One is this DVD. It's a Christmas DVD called The Star of Bethlehem. Have you heard of that, Kirk? No, I haven't. This is truly fabulous. I really recommend that you go out and get it. Even though Christmas is over, we're into the new year now, this is it brought tears to my eyes. It was so uh, revealing of the um, what what it is is it's a law professor who got interested in researching what was the star of Bethlehem. What was it that the wise men actually saw? Mm-hmm. So he invested in an expensive software program now that's called Starry Night. It's used by astronomers. And what it does, it can reproduce the night sky at any time and in the future or the past and from any point on the earth. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So he went, you know, he decided to, you know, he did scripture references and stuff and and figured out that he thought that these wise men were probably from the school of of Daniel uh, in Babylon and and that mm-hmm. probably knew all about Daniel's prophecies about Jesus. Right. So uh, Daniel chapter 9 and, and many other prophecies. So um, using that as, a, as his first initial um, guesswork, he went to, uh, in this program, to Babylon, looked to see what was happening in the night sky at the time of Jesus' birth, and just was totally astounded. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely awesome. All the things that were happening with um, the motion of the planets, stars, the moon, um, different zodiac symbols. Incredible. I'm telling Mm. you, you ought to get it. Then he goes forward into time to see what it was that the uh, wise men saw when they said that the star stopped over Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it really did. It really did actually stop over Bethlehem. And that's this whole thing to do with, if you've heard of the retrograde motion of planets that they will move in the same direction as the stars do during the night, during the night, but then at certain times they will retrograde or move backwards. Hmm. Well, to the observer, though, they can appear to stop, and the rest of the stars behind them continue to move as the Earth rotates. Wow. It is fabulous, I'm <laughs> telling you. So I recommend this, the Star of Bethlehem, to anybody who um, is interested in, in the uh, astronomical uh, evidences for... Uh, the story of Jesus and, wow. and the birth. Oh, and guess what happened? Guess what day that that star stops right over Bethlehem, south directly south from Jerusalem? I don't know. December twenty fifth. 
You're kidding. No, not kidding. That's the day that it it seems to stop dead still in the sky. Wow. And um, uh, possibly that is um, uh, where... December 25th. Of course, the wise men weren't there at at uh, Bethlehem at Jesus' birth. It's like almost two years later, right? About a year and a half later, before they they get there. But so um, you're saying that they actually discovered where he was on December 25th. He was yes. It's not saying he was born on that date. Correct. But they found him on that date. The wise men arrived in Bethlehem. It's only five miles south. So when they're yeah. they're at Jerusalem, um, they were told. Remember that the Herod asked the uh, Jewish leaders and scribes to figure out where the Messiah would have been born. Right. They said Bethlehem. So they, they're in Jerusalem. They look up into the night sky. They've been following the star, right. which is actually a planet. And it appears, they look south, and it appears to stop right over the town of Bethlehem. Hmm. So it's fabulous. I've heard that before, that uh, they say that Jesus, in all probability, was probably born in the... In the uh, the fall, I think, or something like that. Yeah, and that's then right. they, but then they go on to say that you know, based on calculations and whatever and whatever, that it was probably around December twenty fifth when, you know, the, the story took place that the wise men found him and you know offered the gifts and all that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of neat the way that yep. ties in with the date. Absolutely, that we ended up using totally by coincidence, really, right. for his birth date. Right. So, okay, I have another uh, news report here that's pretty interesting. All right. Um, It says, Jesus-era burial shroud found. And this is for all you fans of the Shroud of Turin here. I Mm. don't know how you're going to interpret this, but anyway, the the news item says that a team of archaeologists and scientists says it has, for the first time, found pieces of a burial shroud from the time of Jesus in a tomb in Jerusalem. This is from the, the early first century. And they say that it uh, does not resemble the Shroud of Turin. It's a much simpler weave than the uh, Shroud of Turin and a totally different type of shroud. Now, you can take that any way that you want, uh, but it seems to indicate that the Shroud of Turin may not be authentic since it isn't the same type of shroud as this. Right. This yeah, is that's first... definitely what they're trying to say. Yeah. Um, so... Um, you know, I'm thinking about this, though, it doesn't make much sense um, to think that there would have been only one type of cloth woven. Um, you know, I That's not, true, too. You know, because it wasn't like there were um, monopolies on things like textiles uh, in Jerusalem. Actually, it was probably a mom-and-pop operation all over the region. So people in small towns would be weaving their cloths and then bringing them into Jerusalem to sell. And right. some people who were not skilled would be weaving cloth that was not as well woven. But other people who would be highly skilled uh, would be weaving very high quality cloth and selling that at a much higher price. Right. So um, there's no reason. I you know archaeologists like to um, get their points across, and and one of the things they are trying to prove uh, is that the shroud of Turin is not the burial cloth of Christ. They mm-hmm. mention in that in the news release that, you know, that the um, dating, carbon dating showed, done 20 years ago, showed that the cloth uh, was not from the first century. They don't mention that uh, more than 10 years ago, it was discovered that the portion that they tested was not actually from the original cloth, that it had been, it was a repair piece that had been sewn, uh, woven back into the original cloth. 
So you know, they, okay. it's kind of a one-sided uh, report. So, so but another thing that's interesting here is it says that the body of the man that was wrapped in the fragments of the shroud was found in a tomb dating from the time of Jesus, near the old city of Jerusalem. The tomb he was found in is part of a cemetery called the Field of Blood, where Judas Iscariot is said to have killed himself. Yeah, I know. Pretty interesting. Isn't that All interesting? These, yeah. And the other thing is that he had leprosy, right? Didn't this guy have yes. leprosy? Yes. He died of leprosy, and they think that he may have had uh, MS as well. So this really goes to show that the what the Bible's talking about, the, the, the milieu, the environment, the, the culture that the Bible describes really was happening the way it said. It, the Bible was not written hundreds of years later right. when they w- maybe didn't know that there was uh, leprosy uh, rampant in the area. Mm-hmm. But, you know, archaeology confirms that, yes, indeed, there was leprosy. Um, there was a place called um, the Field of Blood, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. So very exciting news. Very exciting news. Um, okay, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings, guest host for the week. That's right. We, you're filling in for Dr. Mike Larrakis, who could not be here today, but our best wishes to him and his family. Uh, you can... Join the conversation, if you'd like, at 609-398-1020, or you can email us at our website, evidenceforfaith.com, and uh, contact us that way. You know, I found a really interesting quote that I want to read. This is from, I've been reading, well, trying to read, Newton's Principia, or I guess some people pronounce it Principia, which is where he explained the uh, theory of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, and Is that where he was hit on the head by an apple? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Although I haven't got to that part yet. He hasn't talked about any apples yet. But in the introduction to the second edition, the introduction was done by a Cambridge professor of astronomy by the name of Roger Coates. So this is in 1713, and I found it very interesting. Just see what you think of this quote. He says, all sound and true philosophy. Now, in those days, that meant science. Mm-hmm. You know, they were talking about wisdom, philosophy. That was what science was It was, was all called. the same thing. Yeah. Nowadays, philosophy is kind of you know, metaphysical and... Uh, science is the technical part. Right. So all true, uh, so back to the quote, all sound and true philosophy is founded on the appearances of things. Now, in context, I have to tell you what he's talking about is observation. Right. Okay. True science is found on observation. That's what he's saying. Uh Uh-huh. And if these phenomena inevitably draw us against our wills to such principles as most clearly manifest to us the most excellent counsel and supreme dominion of the all-wise and almighty being, they are not, therefore, to be laid aside, because some men may perhaps dislike them. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason he's saying this is because some of the scientists at the time did not want to accept Newton's law of gravity because they thought it was miraculous. They thought that it was occultish and that hmm. one should not invoke God to do science. How right? interesting. Isn't that interesting? They believed that the planets were moved around the sun by an actual medium, an actual stuff called ether, that there was something hmm. pushing on the planets. 
and that there were these vorte vortexes of ether. And that's the, they believed that something that had to actually push it. You couldn't have imaginary forces because that's too much like God. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yes, isn't it? So You could almost make the same argument today and say, well, I don't believe in gravity because you can't see it. You can't touch it. <laughs> exactly. And that's, you, can't, you, know, you can't prove gravity exists. That's some of the arguments that were used against Newton. And so the atheists were very much opposed to Newton's <laughs> ideas. So let me continue. So They must have really went nuts when they found out that the earth hangs on nothing in space. From the Bible? Could they, that, could well, they that's that? supernatural. We can't do that. that. Exactly can't right. Say that. That's exactly right. They yeah. did. They thought that this the discovery of gravity was um, invoking God. It was a god of the gaps. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Here, here's to continue on this quote. These men may call them miracles or occult qualities, but names maliciously given ought not to be a disadvantage to the things themselves unless these men will say at last that all philosophy ought to be founded in atheism. Well, of course, later on, they actually did say that. Right. So, and, That's uh, what they're saying now. And that they're still saying it, yep, since, right. since Darwin. Philosophy must not be corrupted in compliance with these men, for the order of things will not be changed. Newton's distinguished work will be the safest protection against the attacks of atheists, and nowhere more surely from, then, from this quiver can one draw forth missiles against the band of godless men. Is hmm. that so cool? Now, this is, you know, this is a professor of Cambridge, uh, the head of the astronomy department, and he's saying how Newton uh, proves the existence of God that his ev his evidences show God's handiwork and the fine tuning of the universe, and the atheists were up in arms because Newton was uh, invoking occultic uh, dark forces. Isn't that interesting? isn't that odd? And now yeah. everything is flipped. Now the astronomers are constantly bringing up dark forces, dark matter, dark energy. Yes, things, things we that we can't see. see that's right. Invoking, <laughs> but we're supposed to believe in that them. They're there. Black exactly. holes. Yep. Well, now black holes, you can get. Well, there evidence is some evidence for, for them. Yeah. yeah. But but the things that but, they yeah, specifically this, this, say there is no evidence for, such as dark matter. And how about antimatter? Do we really have any proof yeah. that such a thing exists? Yeah. Yeah, they do. So Star Trek was right then. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> okay. good. Yep. They're pretty good on that. Okay, right. we'll skip that one then. All right. Um, Another interesting news item that we have here is they're finding all this neat stuff, and it's interesting that it was around Christmas time that all this happened. They also have found a Jesus-era house in Nazareth. Uh, it says here, days before Christmas, archaeologists unveiled what they said were the remains of the first dwelling in Nazareth that can be dated back to the time of Jesus. Cool. Isn't that something? Yeah. It says here that Nazareth was apparently an out-of-the-way hamlet of around 50 houses on a patch of about four acres. And they have this dwelling that they've uncovered that uh, um, the so, uh, dating has taken it right back to Jesus' era. It might have been one of his neighbors. Cool. So Na that? Nazareth at the time was about 50 houses? Yeah. All right. So that kind of fills in. You That's can a little town. Yeah. You can think about then the next time that you're reading the Gospels, you can think about what the real town was really like. I heard also, I guess it was many years ago, but I heard also they found a first century boat in the uh, Sea of Galilee. 
So we know what the boat yes, is. Yes, I think that, I remember hearing that. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, Jesus was in. So now we know what the town and the houses look like and stuff. That I think that's really cool. It all seems to fit the Bible, even though uh, critics will claim that the Gospels were written hundreds of years later. It's amazing that they keep finding these things, and they all keep fitting in with the biblical account of history. Yep, absolutely. It's And they fit like a glove. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And uh, you can call us at 609-398-1020. But be careful what you call us. That's true. We're sensitive. Yes. <laughs> just don't call us late for dinner. Right. Call me a cab. <laughs> All right. Um, I've got some some more notes that I, I brought back from New Orleans when I went down to uh, the uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society and I've got some short notes on some archaeological work that they were doing at a site called Tel Beth Shemeth, which is mentioned in the Bible uh, a couple of times. One place in Second uh, Kings uh, 14, it's mentioned. Now, the reason this is interesting is, again, because it matches the milieu, the time that uh, the Bible claims to be written, and not the time— that critics will say later, after the Babylonian exile, that the Jews came back to Israel and that they wrote the Bible then to kind of give everybody this national identity. Mm-hmm. Well, if they did that, then the archaeological data wouldn't match up. Mm-hmm. But actually it does. Um, there, for one thing, um, this at the time when the Israelites were coming into the Promised Land and they destroyed several towns— uh, this town was also completely destroyed, and it's possible that this town may be the biblical AI, and then later built on a top of. But one of the interesting things that they discovered is that from then on, there were no more pig bones. Whereas prior to this time, and this is in the Bronze Age, there were plenty of pig bones, then the entire town was completely destroyed, and then built upon after and called Beth Shemeth, now there are no more pig bones to be found, not anywhere. Isn't hmm. that interesting? Yeah. So it exactly fits not only the laws of Moses regarding the eating of pork, the fact that it was destroyed, and exactly fits the time frame. So uh, some more... So that means it wasn't kosher up to this point, and then after that it was kosher. Is that no, what you're it means saying? That the, it means that the... Um, the uh, prior inhabitants uh, were probably eating pork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when the Israelites came along after fleeing from Egypt and wiped out the town, there was no more pork anymore. <laughs> Pigs were safe from then on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, so another a confirmation of, of the Bible. Amazing. Now, I went to another class and heard a very interesting discussion about actual infinities. Now, I know... Now, when you talk about infinities, I yes. know this This may seem a little crazy, but the first image that pops into my mind is the old Ben Casey TV show Why? where he's writing those little symbols on the blackboard in the beginning of the program, and the last okay. symbol is infinity. Oh, cool. How does it go? Uh, I have no something, idea. Something, life, death, infinity were the symbols he writes on the board. All right, cool. I do not remember that at all. I yeah. guess I didn't watch that show. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm only about 27 years old. Oh, okay. So. Well, that, that explains it. Is that what it is? Okay. 
Well, why are actual infinities important? Why do we have to know whether or not there can be actual infinities? The reason tell is me. okay. I'm going to tell you, Kirk. The reason is that a lot of religions or atheistic assumptions that set themselves up against the Christian worldview require that there be actual infinities. For one thing, in Mormonism, the doctrine of in Mormonism is that the universe always existed and that hmm. God manipulated it and shaped the earth out of the stuff that had already existed forever. Okay? Um, okay. So many, they don't believe that he created everything out of nothing. Correct. They believe that oh. that the universe always existed, yes, and okay. that God was a creator as a like creator like an he artist. just rearranged things exactly, just rearranged things. Okay. Um, also, many atheist theories about the universe say that the universe is infinitely large, or has lasted for an infinite amount of time. Right. Or even if they do accept the Big Bang style model. Um, they'll say that there's an infinite number of other universes coming into existence in other realms. Right. Okay, so um, then there are uh, Eastern mystical religions that believe that the universe has lasted forever, that it's infinitely old. Right. All right. Now, the problem is that this is known to be absolutely impossible. Uh, and since the Middle Ages... We've known that there can never be any actual infinities, any physical infinities. Hmm. So one of the ways that you can know this is what they talked about in this lecture that I went to. Uh, it's, a, it's a famous um, description of this, of this situation called Hilbert's Hotel. And I think I stayed there once. Did you? You stayed at Hilbert's <laughs> Hotel? I hope you didn't get lost. Isn't that because... a little dump in uh, Paducah, Kentucky or no, something? No, is, this is an imaginary hotel that's used for thought experiments. And you, you imagine what it would be like for there to be a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. Okay. All right? So there's an infinite number of rooms. Now, just curious, why is it called Hilbert's Hotel? Is that uh, named after the guy that came up with this probably idea? Probably the mathematician, yes. Okay. Uh, so this hotel, if you fill it up, let's say that um, you allow an infinite number of people to come in and take all the rooms up, okay? It's mm -hmm. full. Right. Okay? Now, if someone comes, if you were to now come to the front desk and ask for a room, could you get in? Yes, because it's infinite. Exactly. So there still has to be room left. But the sign on it says full. But it can't be full if it's infinite. Exactly right. So, uh, but you just added an infinite number of people. Okay. Ooh. Isn't that interesting? My mind's spinning here. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there can never, actual infinities are impossible. The concept of infinity is just a mathematical concept that's used to help us do math. It's kind of like negative numbers. It's used to help us do math. So um, well, let me get this straight. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, we should narrow this down to say you're talking about a physical infinity is impossible. Correct. Correct. Okay. Well, and it doesn't have to In be— In the physical world, there's no such thing as an infinity. That's correct. And even in things like time, there is no such thing as an infinity. Really? Yes. Um, there's, there can never be 
uh, an amount of time, anything that's discrete, like a moment or a second or an hour, there can never you can never get to an infinite amount of it. So there can never have been an mm. infinite amount. Okay. So um, so in other words, the universe could not have existed forever. Correct. It, it's impossible. If the universe had existed forever and we came from the infinite past, how long would it take to get to now, to get to right now, the present? Right. How, how long would it take? Forever. <laughs> yes, it would take an infinite more amount than, of time. More than forever, <laughs> if there take, is such a thing. Yeah, it would take an infinite amount of time, therefore you would never get to now. Right, It's It's That's another true. example of the ridiculousness of the concept of actual infinities. It simply can't happen. Here, mathematically, we can describe it this way. Let's say that we have a set of numbers, uh, call it n, and they're all the numbers from 1 to infinity. Okay? Right. So that's an infinite number. That set is infinitely big, correct? Right. All right. Now we have another set of numbers. Let's call it e for even. And these are all the numbers that are even numbers from the number 2 to on to infinity. How, right. bi- how big is that? Infinite. That set of numbers is also infinite. Right. It would have to be. But isn't n greater than e? Is n the set of all numbers? It would have to be, you would think. Of course. (laughs) So infinity is greater than infinity? Okay, now let's create another set, and let's call it the number 4 on to infinity. And we're going to take that set, which is also infinitely large, and we're going to subtract it from the first group n, which is all numbers right. greater than four. What's the what's the result? Infinity minus four. <laughs> no, four four to infinity is what we're taking away <clears throat> right. from one to infinity. The number is three. Okay. So n minus four to infinity equals three. So that means that infinity minus infinity equals three. See see how ridiculous that is? Yeah, it doesn't work. No, because it could be three or it could be any number, because it just depends how many from infinity you divide. So it just shows that that uh, the concept of infinity is an imaginary concept. It doesn't have any real value in anything in the universe at all. Hmm. So there can we can therefore know that the in, that the universe is not and cannot be infinitely big nor can it be infinitely old. It's simply impossible. So any wow. theory, any uh, religion that claims that that is true is wrong, simply wrong. That, that brings up an interesting thought to my mind that one of the arguments against the existence of God that atheists often use, well, they, they will say that, uh, well, you say that God has no beginning and no end. That's impossible. And yet they'll turn around and they'll say that the universe never had a beginning and it'll never have an end. Right. They're willing to right. believe that about the physical universe, but God can't do that. But not about that. God, right. Yeah. Not Isn't, about something which is spiritual. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> or or even uh, could be considered to be outside of time. Right. So, yeah, something that doesn't have a beginning or an end. Well, if it's not in time, why wouldn't it not have a beginning or an end? Right. So. Okay. All right. Well, let's— uh, Fascinating, yeah, isn't that as cool? Mr. Spock would say. The uh, the next class I went to was by Professor Wayne Grudem. Ever heard of him? Uh, no, I don't think so. Grudem is a terrific guy. Grudem is a theologian who's written a systematic theology that is like 
eight or nine hundred pages, and I was forced to read. And so he's really good at torturing uh, theology students. <laughs> uh, he's been responsible for much pain and suffering in the world. <laughs> But he has now turned his uh, forces, his intellect, against pain and suffering itself and has focused for the past couple of years on studying the principles of the Christian worldview that help nations to become rich versus poor. He Mm. really wanted to do something for the poor. And he uh, mentioned about in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul comes back to find out, just to make sure with the Church of Jerusalem, did do I have the true gospel? You know, in what mm-hmm. is what I'm teaching really right? Right. And they, one of the things they said is, yes, Paul, you're correct, but also remember the poor. So that was very, very important to the early church. Hmm. And even um, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, one of the reasons that Jesus came was to preach good news to, to the, the poor. poor. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about the poor that is, uh, you know, that God really uh, has a tender heart for. Mm-hmm. He wants to help the poor. And the spread of Christianity has helped the poor more than anything else in this world. Because what is the number one uh, determinant of whether a person is rich or poor in the world? Can you think what it what it would be? Whether you have an iPod or not. Oh, ooh, I like that. <laughs> no, if you don't, not. you're poor. <laughs> it is what nation you're born into. Okay, if, I can believe that. If you're born into one nation, you're virtually guaranteed of being comparatively rich to the rest of the world. Right. Even if like you're America. poor in that nation, like America. Right. On the other hand, there are some nations that even if you're wealthy there, comparative to there... You're very poor mm-hmm. and always will be and have virtually no chance of rising up out of poverty. Mm. So uh, Professor Grudem wanted to try to find out what made the difference. And historically, what we know is that prior to about the year 1517, the difference between nations on a scale of wealth and poverty was virtually none. There was a, about a one-to-one relationship that very few nations had much difference um, up until 1517. Really? Yeah, there was very little difference. There was no such thing as rich nations and poor nations. There was, but there wasn't much difference. Right. If you lived in a rich... The gap wasn't very far. Exactly. And in some of the countries that were considered rich nations, it was only some of the people, like the aristocracy might be rich. Or the kings or whatever. the, The vast population were just as poor as any other part of the earth Hmm. um, until you have Martin Luther, until you have the turning back to scriptural principles and away from the authority of man, um, then you see this explosion of economic growth from 1550 on um, through to about so that by 1750, the uh, ratio of rich to poor nations now was about five to one. So that means that a rich nation was about five times uh, richer than a poor nation. Hmm. That's back in 1750. So that, so for the past, the, that 200 years since Martin Luther, there was this growth. Then from 1770 to 1870, a hundred year period, there was the Industrial Revolution that really blossomed 
certain countries until they became much, much richer. And this is where you get, you know, world empires and, you know, England becoming dominant and all mm-hmm. that and stuff. But uh, till today, you get, you know what the difference between rich and poor is today? The richest nation and the poorest and the poorest nations? No, Four, what? 400 to 1. Wow. 400 to 1. So um, now, if you look at then, so what Dr. Grudem wanted to do was to look at those principles that come from the, the Scripture in, that have to do with cultural beliefs, that have to do with governmental policies, and that have to do with economic policies, and which of those uh, led to countries becoming rich and which did not. And, of course, not Every country had all the factors. The richest countries didn't necessarily have all the principles, mm-hmm. and the poorest countries didn't necessarily have none of them. They might have had some of them. Right. Um, but these are the principles that made the biggest difference. And where he, he did most of his research is in uh, books on economics and actual visiting of countries and um, uh different economists that were able to help him. One of them that he mentions was a Harvard professor uh, by the name of David Landis, and he wrote a book called The Wealth and Poverty of Nations, Why Some Are So Rich and Some Are So Poor. Hmm. He has studied for his entire career. He's the um, Landis Professor Emeritus of Economics at Harvard, um, and he studied till he studied the economic development of countries for the past 500 years, region by region uh, around the entire world. Hmm. So he developed this database of information about what made nations rich and what made them poor. And then he also looked at different things like um, the creation of wealth by Brian Griffith, the skeptical environmentalist by Bjorn Lomborg, um, many other uh, books, but um, this one is definitely going to be on my uh, reading list, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. Hmm. Um, also, I think he mentioned The Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek um, as, ben- as beneficial for this goal, and uh, Economics in One Lesson by Hem- Henry Hazlitt. So um, that's where these principles come from. And I guess what we'll have to do is save these principles for next week, and we will discuss what principles from the Bible help nations to become rich, and which ones, if ignored, make nations poor. So We're going to have a cliffhanger this week. Exactly. So if you really want to help countries like Africa come out of poverty, we have to teach and promote these principles, mm-hmm. and not neglect them in the United States also, so we don't fall into poverty ourselves. Sounds fascinating. You've we'll have to l- tune in for that. Yep. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And with me, Kirk Hastings, remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. I'd say it's fine to just stay back. Though if you want me, I'll go back. Back, 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 back,